Hello and welcome to the first episode of Cafe Gaga. I'm your host, Gareth Branwyn, and Cafe Gaga is going to be a periodic podcast that I do covering what's on my mind, projects I'm working on, things that are crossing my transom, and sometimes I'll be having guests, uh, friends of mine that I want to talk to about what their projects are and what's on their mind. And in the spirit of that, uh, today I have my friend Michael Taft on the phone, and um, he's currently working on a book called The Mindful Geek and is running an Indiegogo campaign uh, to support that. So I wanted to find out about uh, more about Michael's background in mindfulness meditation, about the book project, the uh, crowdfunding, and that sort of thing. So, uh, Michael, are you there? I am here. How's it going, Gareth? Hey, it's good, Michael. So what is this um, transom you've got in your room there? <laughs> transom is a, I love that word transom, and I think I got it from my dad used to use it. My dad was a civil engineer and a contractor, and yeah, for people that don't know, a transom, and I don't know if it has another uh, uh, application, but it's it's one of those windows above a door, a ventilating window above a door in like a 1930s, 40s. Uh, I, I remember for things like the Sam Spade movies and uh, the Robert Mitchum uh, uh, movies, and I, and I just love the idea. I don't know where the phrase crossing the transom comes from, but I just love that idea of things sort of floating in through that window and onto your desk, which is the image that I get. And I kind of think that's how my uh, media life works, that I have all these things that are constantly floating in and out of my digital life and landing on my uh, front porch uh, in terms of books and things that I get. And uh, so a lot of this podcast is really going to be just picking up that stuff on a given day, just collecting some of the stuff that's uh, on my mind and on my desk and just going through it and talking about it with folks. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's, uh, and I, I, I'll look up that, the origins of the, of the phrase crossing my trance and I'll put them in the show notes to the podcast. Cause I, 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 I keep on thinking to look it up and I never do, but, um, anyway, so that's, that's where, <laughs> that's why I use that word there. Yeah, it's a cool phrase and uh, sounds like uh, a fabulous idea for a podcast, Gareth. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. And um, so, Michael, in the spirit of full disclosure, I'm actually helping Michael on his book, The Mindful Geek. Um, been helping him get his Indiegogo campaign up, uh, which is doing really well now. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. But um, And then I'm also going to be uh, editing the book. I'm, I'm actually in the process of editing it. And um, so, so, yeah, so I've, I've known Michael for uh, a while and uh, know him to be uh, a, a very accomplished meditation teacher. And uh, he does a really great job of explaining things. And he's very much um, focused on the science and psychology of, of meditation and knows quite a bit about that. So I was excited to get him on the show and just talk to him more, sort of drill a little more deeply into what's behind the concept of the mindful geek and uh, what some of these sort of scientific underpinnings are for the effectiveness of mindful, mindfulness meditation. So I thought, first of all, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about your background, like how long you've been doing this kind of work, how you got into it and that sort of thing? Sure. Um, I started because uh, as a teenager in Michigan um, in the 1970s, 
I found myself experiencing um, like immobilizing anxiety attacks. It was uh, very painful and uh, causing a lot of trouble for me. And uh, but in that culture at that time, there really wasn't that much help for it. Um, it was hard to find anyone who could tell me even what was going on. But I, you know, as kind of a geeky, nerdy science fiction nut, I was reading a lot and I read some books that made it clear that maybe meditation would help. And of course, there weren't any meditation teachers available. Uh, so I just had to teach myself. And but I started doing it and I was pretty surprised at how effective it was. I mean, these I sort of dissolved the the really uh, gnarly part of these anxiety attacks relatively quickly. And that um, level of pain relief uh, was a real motivator. And so after that, I began a, a lifetime of meditating. Now, what what particular techniques? I'm interested to know back then, what, what sort of techniques did you start with? You know, it's funny. Um, I almost had to invent my own techniques. I sort of got the idea and I started experimenting and I started working with something quite unusual, almost a form of inquiry uh, about, um, t you know, time and uh, imagining tomorrow. And I just realized I had to quit thinking about what was going to happen a week from now and two weeks from now and just focus on what I could do next. So, you know, the power of now, Gareth. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, because I also, uh, I, I don't meditate much anymore, but for years I was a very avid meditator. And it's interesting, I think we have a pretty similar backstory. And then I was a, a nerdy kid who spent a lot of time in his room reading science fiction and had a lot of uh, social anxiety. And really early on, I was 13, 14, 15 in that area, I started exploring a lot of different spiritual subjects and and uh, one of those was uh, getting in, into meditation but I always found that the, the the more sort of active things like mantra reciting mantras really worked for me um, and uh, yeah chanting and and mantra seemed to be the most effective I think being a sort of ADHD type person the idea of, of uh, you know, shutting off all thoughts or whatever was just too, and I know in some ways that's sort of a misconception, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I found the active ones. And then I got into things like the Be Here Now, the Ram Dass book, and uh, I think, and this was years later, but I think the most effective book uh, for me was, I think it's just called How to Meditate. It was a Ram Dass book. Do you, do you, did you ever see that book? It's a very small little slim little volume. I remember it, yes. The one that really got me going in a much more kind of full steam ahead way was the one about meditation by Lawrence Lachan. Oh, yeah. Where he introduces, I think, five or seven really different techniques and explains them really simply and well. And so there were a few years there where, as my own meditation teacher, I used that book as sort of my guide. It was very effective. Mm -hmm. You know, for people who are um, really mental and have a lot of uh, internal chatter, as you were describing the um, mantra technique in which you're, you know, essentially repeating a phrase or a word in your mind uh, can be really effective because it's sort of filling up that channel, that mental talk channel with something that is uh, soothing or at least not 
upsetting. Yeah. You know, it's at least neutral. And uh, there's a there's a kind of uh, a kind of mental relaxation that can come from doing that. Yeah, I found the the relaxation and the the sort of mental focusing, just focusing on one thing. And then even things like I found that uh, looking at uh, yantras or mandalas or whatever, just focusing, visually focusing in on something was also very effective for me. Yeah, so this is interesting. You know, there's a a natural sort of feedback loop that comes from uh, concentration and relaxation. Um, you know, I think people may have discovered this in... Um, uh, indigenous societies when, you know, hunting and having to sit still for very long periods of time. But when you really focus your attention, you start to uh, go into a flow state like uh, psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi has uh, written about for many years. And so just doing any task with a lot of focus, a task that you're kind of uh, good at, uh, brings a relaxing state. But then there's an interesting thing you can do, which is if you concentrate on the sensations of relaxation. So now instead of just getting relaxation out of concentrating uh, and enjoying that, you're actually concentrating on the relaxation. And so then you relax a little more. And then because you're concentrating on it, you notice it more. And it builds this really deep feedback loop of like a flow state of concentration. Right. And so that's where you're starting to go into a pretty deep meditative state. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very susceptible. Like I, I, any sort of guided meditation or those uh, procedures in which are common in a lot of guided meditation where you do the thing of putting your awareness into different parts of your body and tensing and relaxing or any of those sorts of things, man, that just is so incredibly effective for me, especially when there's somebody else who's doing the, uh, the audio, uh, you know, uh, guiding. Well, it's nice to know that you're uh, easily hypnotized, Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I shouldn't put that out there. <laughs> um, yeah, just one other thing before we move on and, and getting back to that Ram Das book, uh, because I had been sort of... Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't get any effective uh, results out of any technique that didn't involve replace, you know, just doing a mantra or replacing my normal chatter with a, you know, with a new, uh, you know, simple thing. Is uh, one of the meditations he has in there is when you have that you just sort of hang out with your thoughts, and that when a thought arises, you just put it in a little bubble and let it, you know, it floats in and it floats out. You don't necessarily try to push it away or process it or whatever. You just sort of kind of watch it float through, I guess, is would be a way of describing it. And I found that really, really effective because I had gotten into that probably a typical trap that people get into where I thought you needed to like not, oh my God, there's a thought. I got to get that out of, you know, it's like. Um, yeah, that's a real misconception. We have sort of two misconceptions that make it hard. You know, I teach a lot of meditation and, um, Students coming in uh, for the first time uh, bring sort of two cultural images of what we're supposed to be doing, and it causes them a lot of trouble. One is what you're just describing. You know, oh, I, if I'm sitting here meditating, it means I don't have any thoughts. Well, you know, good luck. <laughs> yeah, right. um, that, you know, it doesn't work that way. And, and it, especially in the kind of meditation that I'm describing in this book, 
that's not even one of the goals. You know, it's almost irrelevant how much mental talk you're, you have going on to this form of meditation. You can still be in a very deep meditation and have quite a bit of mental talk going on. Uh, it just won't be as uh, necessarily as painful or annoying, but uh, it, it can be fully present. So, you know, there's no need to stop thinking or to think that if you are thinking something's wrong. Right. The other the other sort of uh, cultural image um, is the sort of yogi trance image that you're going to sit down and go into some kind of ultra bliss state where you're sort of having a cosmic orgasm as you're mm -hmm. sitting there. And I mean, again, you know, if that's happening, great. You know, <laughs> I mean, more power to you. But it's not really what we're trying to do in mindfulness meditation. Um, mindfulness is more about, it's not all the way, but it's more about um, accepting whatever experience is arising, whether it's a positive experience and pleasant, or even if it's kind of difficult and maybe even emotionally painful or something, we're going to sit and um, uh, work with that the way it is with what, you know, whatever's arising in the moment is fine. We're not trying to induce a particular state. Right. Which maybe that's a good uh, segue. I've noticed in, in working with you on this campaign and, and uh, seeing your uh, Facebook feed and stuff, you always, you don't say meditation, you always say mindfulness meditation. Can you, what's the distinction there? Why is it always prefaced with mindfulness? Yeah, it's sort of like saying, you know, a, a car versus a 67 Chevy Camaro. Um it's, you know, uh, mindfulness is a subset of meditation and it's a very specific subset. And so I just like to be clear what we're talking about. When you're talking about meditation in general, that's a extremely vast field of a lot of different whole classes of techniques um, like mantra, like visualization, like self-inquiry. And one of those big classes is mindfulness, but it is a subset. And um, what distinguishes mindfulness is that it's about, um, you know, uh, not interfering with moment-by-moment -moment sensory uh, experiences and, in fact, opening up to accepting moment-by-moment -moment sensory experiences. So let's say, you know, the feeling of your feet right now and then getting into actually investigating those sensations in detail with a lot of curiosity and openness. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, well, yeah, maybe we'll, let's talk a little bit about the book. So you're crowdfunding this book on Indiegogo, um, which is called The Mindful Geek. What's the, what's the idea behind A Mindful Geek? Well, you know, <clears throat> it's interesting. I just... Over um, all these years, I've noticed how many of the people who come to my classes are really turned off by uh, any mention of any kind of uh, religious concepts or spiritual concepts. And um, the more that I've been working with meditation over the many years, especially, you know, getting involved in some neuroscience and psychology and other um, sort of evidence-based um approaches to meditation, I've just noticed that these uh, religious elements, while I think they're wonderful 
and have spent a lot of my life working with them, they're really not necessary to get across the technique or what you're trying to do with the technique or to for a person to have a really powerful, uh, beneficial practice. So I thought, well, why are we including these if it's actually, you know, blocking entry for people who are would really like to get the, you know, into mindfulness meditation. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time really rethinking this from the ground up. And uh, one of the teachers I work with, Shinzen Young, is quite secular, and he's a he's like a mathematician and a scientist also. And so we, um, using some of his work and leveraging off that, I've really spent the time to kind of rethink this whole thing. So it's not just kind of a thinly veiled Buddhism, but is actually coming from uh, a more kind of, um, uh, let's say, evolutionary, neuroscientific, psychological, and practical basis. Okay. And um, so, and then, so basically what you're saying in terms of it being the book being geared towards geeks, when you use the word geeks, you just mean people that are skeptical of the kind of spiritual trappings of traditional meditation techniques or? Yeah, you know, um, as a as a science fiction geek and someone who, you know, was uh, raised in a very skeptical way, um, uh, it was interesting and fun for me to get involved in all the um, the spirituality and religious parts almost as a journey through these other cultures. I mean, I really uh, like foreign languages and learning other cultures. And so uh, as part of my meditation journey, getting into these other mindsets for me was very fun and effective, even though uh, my initial sort of stance was pretty skeptical. But I understand that uh, not everyone feels that way about it. And I think in the you know, passing of these several decades, people, you know, the kind of lines between, uh, quote, spiritual stuff and, you know, like secular scientific stuff have gotten more contentious and they're drawn more sharply and they're more sharply divided. And so uh, to me, the way I'm using the word geek is sort of, you know, someone who's into science, who's fairly skeptical, who's probably pretty smart and maybe kind of a smart ass, <laughs> and who um, uh, has been noticing that, geez, there's a lot of interesting research about this mindfulness stuff, but they just have the sinking suspicion that they're going to get in the class and end up, you know, waving incense or chanting to a deity or something that they're just not comfortable with. Right. And so, you know... Um, I've really, you know, I've been teaching this at Google and with that kind, that level of a geek crowd and um, have worked very hard to make it um, amenable to smart, skeptical, technically inclined folk. Okay. And that, so that's an interesting thing. So you're teaching uh, these classes at places like Google with maybe uh, populations of people that are predisposed to skepticism towards this stuff, how, how do they respond and do they report great results with the techniques and stuff? Yeah, I mean, that's um, that was the revelation is that they respond really well and they get, as far as I can tell, just as much, if not more, benefit out of the practices. And because we're not spending a lot of time talking about 
um, sort of ultimate reality uh, worldview concepts, we can spend a lot more time just working with the practical aspects of, of how to meditate and how to get the benefit of that in your life. So it's actually maybe more effective in certain ways. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I, I've also noticed you've referred to it as a technology, and I love, I actually love that idea. Of, and I think a lot of that, I first uh, got hip to that through the chaos magic stuff that was happening in the 90s where the where the thing, where it was just all results based it either works or it doesn't work you you try a technique if it works you keep doing it if it doesn't work you 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 jettison it and it really is just based on results and so these things really do become spiritual technologies that you that you apply as as they're effective um, and i think that's a really interesting sort of uh, switch in people's perceptions of, of what these things are and how they work. Well, hail Eris, Gareth. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Hail Discordia. <laughs> you know, um, uh, that's right. And yet, you know, I'm not just sort of, uh, I want to say pulling this shit out of my ass. I don't think I can say that. Kind of <laughs> I'm on my show. <laughs> I don't think there's yeah, censorship okay. here. <laughs> um, you know, I don't want to give the impression that I'm just pulling this stuff out of my ass. I mean, these are highly developed, um, you know, techniques, technologies that have been used for a long time in many different traditions. So, uh, but yeah, you know, for me, a student who is trying one, you know, there's many techniques, a student who is trying one and not getting something out of that needs to switch. Right. It's not just one of these things like, hey, just keep doing it for 30 years and see if something happens because right. we all believe it works. Well, let's get into that for a minute, Michael, talking about some of the, the science underpinning. And I know you've, you've actually participated in some studies and you're certainly up, up on, on what's being studied in, in the realm of uh, the effectiveness of these techniques. And so what's, what are some of the cutting edge research? What are some of the findings? Uh, who is doing this sort of work? Well, I mentioned earlier, Gareth, about flow, the flow state, which is, you know, essentially being absorbed in uh, what you're doing. You're very concentrated, you're relaxed, it's a very pleasant state. And, at it, you know, people report all these positive sort of experiences during that state, even if it's playing Sudoku or playing tennis or whatever. If you're focused, you're relaxed, you're concentrated, you get more and more absorbed. That's a flow state. So sort of synonymous with the people talk about being in the zone. Are we talking about yeah, being in the zone? being in the zone, being in, you know, in a groove, that kind of thing. Right. Um, but uh, my friend Judson Brewer, who's uh, an MD, PhD, who runs the uh, Therapeutic Neuroscience Lab, which is part of the University of Massachusetts, has isolated the fMRI signature of the flow state in his lab, and then um, has been working for the past several years to translate that fMRI signature to an EEG signature. And if you know anything about those two technologies, they're really different. They act really different. But the, so, you know, translating this is non-trivial. He's got a lot of technicians and engineers and physicists working on how to translate this fMRI signal that he's seeing in the brain into a readable EEG signal. But there's compelling reasons to do that, uh, which is mainly that with a simple EEG rig, you can um, 
get this kind of very high level neurofeedback. But what's interesting is the the um, signature of the flow state is the opposite of daydreaming. So a few um, years ago, scientists discovered that the brain, uh, when it's working really hard, um, is only working just a few percent harder than when you're just not doing anything at all. Your brain is kind of on all the time and it's just doing different things. And when you're sitting there daydreaming, the brain has a specific uh, network of nodes that handles daydreaming and it's called the default mode network. It's the default state that your brain falls into when you are basically not engaged in any other task. Right. And what's really compelling is a lot of research seems to indicate that, you know, the default mode network um, activity is highly correlated with some pretty difficult stuff like anxiety, depression, um, and so on. So, you know, um, nothing wrong with daydreaming, but spending a lot of time there, um, it tends to, to lead to some some difficulty it tends to make you feel bad. And in fact, there was a huge research study. I, I forget how many people, something like 30,000 people, uh, they you tested with an iPhone app. It was a really interesting app. It would just at random times throughout the day, ask them what they were doing and how they were feeling. And so people were uh, ridiculously compliant. The subjects really responded to this, even when they were doing things like, having sex, they would reply <laughs> what they were doing and, and, you know, how they were feeling. Um, and um, so they got, the scientists got this in, immense amount of data and it turned out that, uh, you know, if they were daydreaming, they tended to feel kind of bad. And um, so that's the, the activity of the default mode network, you know, and you can just sort of um, sum it all up. Uh, uh, as uh, Dr. Killingsworth, the guy who, one of the guys who did this Harvard study, uh, said, you know, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. So, um, and it, it's also correlated with addiction, by the way. And so um, what Judd has done is shown that there's a way of focusing um, that has um, the opposite signal. So when you go into the default mode network, one of the major nodes in this uh, default mode network is called the PCC, which is the posterior cingulate cortex, but I'll just call it the PCC. And, um, you know, when you're daydreaming a lot, the PCC is highly active. It's a major player in the default mode network. But when you begin to be focused and you begin to be concentrated and, and, and caught up in an activity and your mind is not wandering so much, the PCC activity starts to go way down. Now, he's using this to um, create applications to um, work with, he's, a, he's an MD, as I mentioned, and he's creating applications to work uh, therapeutically with addiction, like smoking addiction, and I think they're um, adding food addiction and so on, and they're getting amazing results. Um, because it turns out when you get feedback about how to turn down the PCC activity, um, it reduces anxiety, it reduces depression, and it seems to have a strong effect on um, addiction. And so um, this is what meditators have always known. And in fact, there's 
uh, certain types of meditation that are very that appear to be very good at dialing down the PCC activity. Um, and so meditation has kind of known meditators have kind of known this for a long time, but now this research really powerfully shows uh, the effect of this kind of work. Now, has there been studies in the past or, or uh, um, uh, clinical work with uh, meditation and addiction? Yeah, there's been quite a bit. And um, uh, most forms of meditation seem to uh, help. Um, but this particular style seems to help a lot. Right. And we're, and we're talking about actually having an effective feedback loop through hardware, right? In the case of the gear that Judson Brewer is developing, yes. Mm -hmm. um, people are always comparing this to some kind of device like the Muse, and it is, you know, in the same class of devices, but you have to imagine a level of sensitivity and feedback like several orders of magnitude higher. It's a real challenge. What's the Muse? Um, it's, a, it's a little um, like a feedback band that you put on your head and measures your brain waves. Okay. So this is a sort of a up 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 more sophisticated version of that sort of technology or does that it work sort of, completely different? It, it, it's the same idea but much more sophisticated. Okay, right. And actually measuring uh, uh, an area of the brain waves a, a, a what would you call it a um, channel of the brain waves that is quite different. Right, okay. And you actually participated in, in this study, didn't you? Not the study, but in helping to get the gear working. I, I, had the, I went and visited the lab and had the pleasure of working on one of the days when they first got the software up and running. And, you know, they sort of fitted me in this cap with all the, and, you know, squirted all this electrically conductive gel on my scalp and put in 120, you know, um, leads into the cap and, it was just fascinating um, because I have a lot of meditation experience. They were asking me to do, you know, certain particular techniques. And then we were evaluating uh, the readout. Okay. So in, in other words, um, in order to tune their feedback device, they wanted people who sort of could create some of these things more or less at will. Right. Okay. And then, yeah, that was going to be my next question is that, is, is it possible if this, if this uh, research developed to the point where there could be an app you could have on your phone that would allow you to, you know, sort of get into one of these flow sticks very easily? Yes. I mean, you know, the idea would be a, a headset um, and uh, some, maybe some cables and then an app that like uses the feedback from the headset to guide you into this very deep flow state in which, you know, as I mentioned, when the flow state gets very deep, the sense of self starts to uh, attenuate. Right. And as you may have noticed, you know, um, there's a reason we say, you know, he feels self-conscious as a synonym for feeling kind of bad. Right. Um, having, you know, that sort of focus on yourself is unpleasant. But in a very deep flow state, you're so focused on the activity you're doing that you um, don't feel as bad. You actually feel quite good, usually. Right. And so um, this uh, feedback helps guide you to into that place, and um, which from the research of the lab would seem to indicate that your posterior cingulate cortex is sort of dialing down. 
And this is unusual research. You know, almost all the meditation research done by big labs like uh, Richie Davidson's lab at the University of Wisconsin and and um, others focus uh, on um, the prefrontal cortex. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, majority of the research is about the prefrontal cortex, all very, very interesting stuff. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, probably slightly tangentially, but when you were talking about that, you know, the, the, uh, the idle, the daydreaming mind is an unhappy mind, I was thinking, I think it comes from neuro-linguistic programming, but I read many, many years ago, and my wife and I used to talk about this quite a bit, where um, I think in NLP, there's, there's two different uh, types of people, the type of people that put themselves, that picture themselves in their happy memories when they think back to happy, think about their memories. They, some people think, put them, actively put themselves in the happy memories and then sort of uh, dampen the negative memories and then other people do the exact opposite. Or when you're in that sort of idle state, the default is to think about sort of pleasant things in that state as opposed to anxiety and all that sort of stuff. And and when my wife and I talked about it, I was definitely one of those people that tended to go to the positive on idle and put myself actively in positive memories. And she was the exact opposite. Yeah, you know, it can be um, uh, really interesting to look at these features of how your own sort of, you know, just to be metaphoric here, how your own brain software works. And that's kind of the the central point of mindfulness meditation is by kind of spending dedicated time really sort of teasing apart the strands of sensory experience and investigating what's going on in your own sensory experience really closely. You start to get these really amazing insights into your own um uh, functioning. Exactly. And I think of it as a kind of, um, I think of mindfulness meditation as a sort of uh, quantified human adjunct. Um, you know, uh, instead of <clears throat> measure, you know, writing in a diary or on a spreadsheet how you're feeling once an hour, you know, um, which is to me a sort of mindfulness practice. When you sit and meditating, when you sit and meditate, you are noticing how you're feeling every second or every five seconds or whatever. And so there's this kind of uh, really close, detailed feedback loop that you can generate that gives you tremendous insight into your own uh, behavior. It's kind of um, a process of like looking under the hood and seeing what's really going on. And this is um, not just interesting or fascinating or self-indulgent or narcissistic, it actually has very provable, powerful, beneficial um, um, effects on your quality of life, on your well-being, and right. and especially for those around you, too. It tends to make you less of a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I definitely think, again, even though I don't actively meditate uh, much anymore, and I, I have a feeling that in the process of uh, editing your book, and just spending more time with you, I'll, I'll probably end up getting getting back into it. But for doing you, it, you poor, poor bastard. <laughs> What's that? You poor, poor bastard. <laughs> but I, I definitely think that years of doing it in my youth, I really, really learned a lot about myself and how my brain works. And uh, between that and then 
sort of more overt spiritual practices and ritual and then, uh, you know, sort of uh, conscious drug experimentation, not just uh, drugs as a, as a recreational thing, but using it as an extension of that sort of self-exploration, which I did a fair amount of in my youth. Um, yeah, I think I, I, I kind of know how my brain works um, as a result, or at least some, something more of how my brain works as a result of all that. Yeah, and you know, you you've mentioned sometimes about working. You know, you've got some medical conditions, and you've experienced a good amount of pain in your life, and you know, you've learned how to work with that pretty effectively. That's another um, thing that I would put in the class of mindfulness meditation. Yeah, that's a that's a really excellent point. Yeah, the other component for me is yeah, I have something called psoriatic arthritis, which I've had since I was sixteen years old, and. Yeah, I, I mean, I tell people that I'm a pain yogi, that I really understand the nature of my pain because I've had it every single day since I was 16 years old. And it's, it's sort of, you know, what uh, doesn't make you, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I've really learned uh, how to uh, deal with that in a, in a way that I can continue to function and so forth. Yeah, and this is um, points back to what I was saying, you know, this is not about sitting there and trying to have some kind of intensely blissful experience, um, you can do very powerful mindfulness meditation just on pain. Right. You know, and get a lot out of it. Um, so that's very useful in situations where, for example, you have some physical pain that, you know, no matter, you, you just can't do anything about. Right. Yep. Well, that would be mine. Um, let's talk a little bit about the book itself. Like, what will the book have in it? You know, what's the structure of the book? And is it going to be uh, mainly techniques? Or, um, yeah, just what's, what will the book be comprised of? Well, I like to think of the book as a, um, you know, manual for how to do mindfulness meditation in your life um, that stands on its own. So there are... Uh, a, a number of techniques and um, ways to apply those techniques, both in formal sitting and also as you're walking around in the world. But, you know, my experience with a lot of students is that just knowing the technique isn't anywhere near enough. There's a lot of sort of um, uh, shop talk kind of information that goes along with these techniques that you have to communicate in order for someone to be able to use them effectively. There's the typical difficulties and questions that come up, um, which I uh, answer to the best of my ability in the book. Um, there's sort of like, well, which one should I do? There's, am I doing it right? There's, there's just a lot of things that I've learned over many years of teaching that I'm uh, also including in there so that when you pick this up, it's not just techniques. It's sort of a whole uh, teaching about how to bring this uh, technology to bear on your own life. Right. And then you also, uh, for your Indiegogo campaign, you have some, some of the perks there involve uh, some recorded uh, meditations and then also some uh, private, like a like one-on-one -on -one meditation um, lessons or whatever? Yeah, so I, you know, I have several um, free or donation-based meditation classes around the Bay Area that I just, you know, have been doing. Uh, one of them I've been doing for many years. 
and uh, the other one we just started in San Francisco. Uh, So that's going to happen later. And so that's one level, but I also um, really enjoy guiding meditation on audio. I enjoy working one-on-one with people over the phone or on Skype. So I'm offering those um, as perks so that people who want to contribute, you know, um, significantly to the campaign can uh, really get a lot of personal attention to help get their meditation practice going. And, you know, um, it's not all just money-based either. I mean, I want to, one of my goals is once the book comes out, and I'm not sure I'll be able to do this, but I want to be able to, uh, I want to broadcast a free sort of hangout on air at least once a week and maybe even more where, you know, people who are interested can just tune in for free and, uh, and learn these techniques. Right. And so the Indiegogo campaign, if people just go to Indiegogo, and that's I-N-D-I-E-Gogo.com, and then they, if they just search on the Mindful Geek, they'll get the page. And you're trying to get uh, $8,000 for the campaign, and you've got, you just breached the 50% mark, is that right? Actually, while we've been recording this, um, we went up higher. We got some good donations. <laughs> You've been monitoring the. <laughs> I never stop. I'm a, I'm a geek, Kira. So. Uh, have you looked in the middle of the night? I was doing that when I get up to go to the bathroom. I was checking out my <laughs> campaign. It's pretty pathetic. <laughs> it's definitely uh, um, addictive. So yep. um, I need to do a little more meditating. Um, but the um, we're up to fifty-five percent at this point. Oh, beautiful. And so, okay, so you're going to have the, the book. You'll have a, you'll have, there's digital versions of the book um, in what sort of format? You'll have the Kindle format, PDF, and, and uh, I, iBook? And EPUB. Right. And, um, uh, and then there will also be a paperback version. Right, okay. And then so there's a paperback version. And there's some other perks people can check out for some of your other uh, some of the other books that you've done, or that there's the uh, the non-dualism book, which I guess was your last, most recent book. Yeah, and that's coming from um, a philosophical, um, almost theological ang- angle on this idea of uh, non-dualism, which may or may not be interested interesting to mindful geeks. Right. But I threw it in there because uh, I really like the book, and it's an interesting introduction to a, a, a quite a fascinating concept right cool and uh and then the book uh you you will you you put it you're going to put out both the ebooks and the print book at the same time or what's the... i think uh the idea currently is that the print book will come out a few weeks later than the um ebooks just to give me time to format that more completely right so yeah, Michael. Um, if you, unless you have something else you'd like to add, I think we can probably wrap it up here. I know you. I think you have a class tonight to do. Do you? Do you not? Yeah, this is the one in um, in the hate. Okay. Yeah. And you've been doing that for how long now? We just started that last week. It's really exciting. So if you're in San Francisco or the Bay Area and you want to. Uh, uh, learn some secular mindfulness meditation with me, um, come on over. Just look it up um, uh, on uh, Facebook under The Mindfulness Project. 
Okay. And then, yeah, when, like when you were mentioning that uh, the flow state research, you actually wrote a piece for your website on that, did you not? I did. My website uh, is called deconstructingyourself.com, and um, the article is called Flow Machine. Okay, and then, uh, then, then, as I was saying, the Indiegogo, you can go there to uh, to check out the Mindful Geek project and uh, and pledge to that if so inclined. And uh, please do. All right, well, Michael, thank you so much for uh, being my first guest on my Cafe Gaga podcast. Oh, it's a real pleasure, Gareth, and hopefully an honor. <laughs> it was great. It was great to have you on. And um, yeah, hopefully uh, we'll uh, get you back sometime and talk. Yeah, because one of the other things that Michael did, which I'm a huge fan of, which is actually how we became friends, is he was the uh, producer and the interviewer for one of Robert Anton Wilson's last interviews, which was called uh, Robert Anton Wilson Explains Everything or Old Bob betrays his ignorance what was the um i think it's um reveals reveals his ignorance yeah which is a, a no five... i'm sorry it's exposes exposes there you go yep uh which i'm a huge fan of that series um and so i looked michael up on facebook and we became friends uh, i don't know like a year and a half ago or two years ago or whatever but um so yeah, I'd love to get you back on sometime to talk about that, like your experience of working with Robert Anton Wilson. And, that would uh, be great, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that a lot of the folks who would be interested in my podcast are interested in, in that subject, but I didn't want to keep you too much longer, so I'll, I'll let you go this time, but I'll have you back. That would be great. All right, Michael, well, have a good rest of your night. Thanks a lot, Gareth. Have All a right, good one. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Michael Taft. Um, it's been really great working with him on this uh, Mindful Geek project, and I, I hope uh, we get the funding to complete that project. And uh, I'll let you know more about that as uh, as it progresses on this podcast and on my website, which is you can find me at uh, GarethBrandwin.com, and uh, I have a uh, a blog there called Mindbone, which is where I put up uh, a lot of my projects that I'm working on. I'll be putting up these podcasts. And I also wanted to let folks know about my book, which uh, is called Borg Like Me, and it's a collection of my best work. And uh, I also call it a lazy man's memoir, uh, where I went through and sort of backfilled uh, the, the, the collected material with new material that tells the stories about what was going on in my life and what was going on in the birth of digital culture and so forth at the time of the articles in the various magazines that I worked for, Wired, uh, Boing Boing, Mondo 2000, my own zine called Going Gaga. So please check that out. Uh, That's available on Amazon uh, if you're interested in getting it there, Borg Like Me. And I also have my own imprint called Sparks of Fire Press, which is what I put the book out on. That's sparksoffirepress.com. And if you buy it directly through me, I have a number of little perks. Uh, it comes in a hand uh, mail art embellished envelope, and I have these custom stamps that I had made, and uh, you get a custom letter-pressed bookmark that my my son, Blake Maloof, who's an artist, uh, did these beautiful bookmarks for it. And so I have some little perks if you get it directly uh, through me. 
And then I also wanted to tell folks that uh, I now write for Wink Books, which is an awesome website started by uh, Carla Sinclair and Mark Fraunfelder of Boing Boing and Kevin Kelly from Cool Tools and uh, one of the founding uh, editors at Wired. And that's a site where we put up books that uh, that we really feel like belong in print, that they are books that are really best served in in print format. So art books, instructional books, comic books, uh, just odd, artifactually uh, significant books. Um, so I do uh, normally two reviews a month there, and so you can see my work there in book reviewing. That's winkbooks.net is the uh, URL there. And then I also want to tell people about something that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing in the spring, starting in the spring here in Arlington, Virginia, which is where I live. I'm going to be working on something called Cafe Gaga at Artisphere. And uh, I, I'm calling this podcast Cafe Gaga. Cafe Gaga was a salon that I originally did in the early 90s here in, in, in Virginia and in D.C., where I got um, artists and scientists and uh, writers and uh, musicians and uh, doctors and just a lot of people uh, from my circle of friends, but people from a lot of different disciplines. And I would get them together uh, every month, we'd choose a theme. Each person who chose the theme would host the Gaga at their house, the salon, and uh, we'd have a dinner and then we'd explore the theme through both uh, sort of a physical, mental, intellectual exploration of the idea, but then always there had to be an artistic exploration of the idea as well. So if it was like astronomy, then there had to be the scientific uh, exploration of astronomy and there had to be some artistic uh, component to the exploration. And so that was Gaga in the 90s. And so for Artisphere, the uh, wonderful art space here in Arlington, Virginia, starting in April, I'm going to be doing a series of nights called Cafe Gaga at Artisphere where we basically bring back the same model. There won't be dinner involved, but we'll have a happy hour and uh, then we will get together and um, I'll have some guest attendees and we will explore a number of ideas all centered on the Sean Smith show, which will be happening at the same time. Sean Smith is an amazing artist who um, really is sort of exploring what I call the membrane between the physical and the virtual or what might be called the born and the made. And um, so that was really the impetus for the series of evenings was to look at the sorts of techniques that he's using, things like 3D printing and um, and 3D uh, design programs and things and uh, sort of looking at these emerging technologies and how these emerging technologies are impacting art production and then just our lives in general and so we're going to have a series of nights. There'll be a video uh, to kick things off called Leaky Margins, which will sort of introduce the whole concept for the series. And then there'll be a night on uh, exploring, among other things, but the main theme will be the Internet of Things, which is 
an emerging technology that you can look up if you're not familiar with what Internet of Things refers to. But we'll have a night related to the Internet of Things, and then we'll have a night related to 3D printing and desktop fabrication technologies, and I'll have some artists and people from uh, like Fab Lab DC and other uh, makers in the area who are exploring 3D printing technology. And then the last evening in the series will be a little bit different. It's gonna it's called uh, Kronos versus Kairos. And it's kind of riffing off of a new book by Doug Rushkoff called Present Shock, which is just looking at the sort of shock of the digital present and the sort of always on digital reality that we live in and what the benefits of that are, how that differs from the sort of chronos clock time that we're used to, and uh, and just sort of how we can take better control over um, the whole process, like you optimize the use of this new kind of way of being always on and being nowhere and everywhere and and uh, the ways in which these technologies have sort of gotten away from us and uh, ways that we can sort of use them in a more effective and productive way and I'll try to tie it into the local community and uh, and and things will be some some fun things that we'll be uh, talking about um, there, like how we can actually imply some of what we've covered in the whole uh, series of Cafe Gaga at Artosphere to our you know to our personal lives and to the local art community and community at large. So that'll be coming up in April. I'll have more information on that as we as I work on it here on the podcast and um, on my website garethbranwin.com and. Um, yeah, I don't know when the next Cafe Gaga podcast will be, but uh, I hope to just do them periodically, have the thing set up, and when I have a, an interesting thing happen or having an interesting conversation with a friend, just sort of throw them on the call and um, kind of like what I did today with, with Michael. Um, so I'm hoping to do, you know, at least once a, one a month for starters, and then eventually I'd really like to get to... Uh, one a week, but we'll see how that goes. So thank you for sticking around, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the first one. Please uh, give me feedback of things that I can do to improve the podcast and things that you'd like to see me cover. And uh, so until next time, thanks a lot for listening.